Hi everyone. Sorry we can't be together this Sunday. Although an advantage of this format is that you can put the preacher on fast forward, uh, which I'm sure some of you would like to do on a Sunday. Uh, we're going to look at God's Word, continuing in our series, uh, Letters to the Church, looking at a letter to Ephesus. If you want to uh, grab your Bibles, uh, Revelation 2, 1 to 7, you can put this on pause uh, and then I'll read today's reading for us. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven gold lampstands, says, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. You also possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in God's paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, about 30 years ago, John Stott wrote a book on Revelation 1-3, to and he called it, um, what Christ thinks of the church. Uh, and uh, that's a great thing to keep in mind this week as we uh, gather on Wednesday night to think about what we think of the church. Uh, can I suggest uh, that uh, you could do a lot worse uh, than reading about what Christ thinks of the church from Revelation 2 to 3 uh, in preparation for Wednesday night uh, where you might talk about what you think of the church at St. Philip's, uh, to put what you think through the grid of what Christ thinks of the church, where we're looking at what Christ thinks about the church in Ephesus today. Uh, this map uh, shows you a picture of uh, the uh, seven churches that John writes to. Uh, you can see the island of Patmos is about 100 kilometers to uh, Ephesus, uh, on the left of screen. And you can see that the reason for the order of the uh, letters is basically because it's the route that the kind of postman would have followed from uh, Patmos to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. It was about 100 k's from Patmos to the port at Ephesus. Uh, a few things about Ephesus, it was the capital city of Asia, it was a booming metropolis with a population estimated to be 250,000, which was huge uh, for that area. Uh, the place was hostile to Christianity. Uh, there was magic and witchcraft that you read about in Acts 19. Uh, there was the great um, temple of Artemis. Uh, I've been to uh, the ruins of Ephesus and you can see uh, the remains of the temple to Artemis. It was considered one of the seven wonders 
uh, of the world. Uh, they had a temple for the worship of the emperor, Caesar, uh, in Ephesus. Uh, and uh, there's a photo here of the uh, theatre uh, in which the Ephesians gathered uh, after a riot uh, where they shouted or chanted for two years, Great is Artemis, goddess of the Ephesians, uh, in response to Paul's preaching in Acts 19. So it was hostile to Christianity then, and 30 years later it was still hostile to Christianity at the writing of this letter uh, that John was bringing uh, this revelation to the Ephesians. Uh, but as we turn to what Christ thought about the church in Ephesus, I want you to imagine uh, that I bought uh, Ruth some flowers. Uh, I get home, I ring the doorbell, uh, she answers, oh, they're beautiful, why did you? And, and I say, well, it's my duty. Uh, I'm your husband. Uh, that's what husbands do. Well, how does she feel about me right now? Not that great. Okay, let's try again. I ring the doorbell. And she sees the flowers. Karen, they're beautiful. Why did you? And this time I say, darling, because I just can't help it. I love buying flowers for you. In fact, I've got the whole night booked out for us. I've hired a babysitter. I've booked a restaurant because I just want to hang out with you. I love being with you. How does she feel this time? She feels loved, embraced, valued. The fact is that uh, most couples start out like that with all the passion and romance of that, that second scene, but many couples end up in the duty and the doldrums of the first scene. Well, this is basically what's happened for the Christians in Ephesus. Jesus says to them in verse 4, you have forsaken your first love. Uh, it's interesting because um, Paul's letter to the Ephesians uh, that we have written about 30 years earlier finishes the very last verse. Paul says to the church in Ephesus, grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. But here, some 30 years later, Jesus says to the same church, you have forsaken your first love. This is the first and great commandment that Jesus gives in Matthew 22. And it's so important. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Just two chapters later in Matthew 24, he says, Because of the multiplication of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. And Jesus can see when he looks at the church in Ephesus that that's exactly what's happening with them. You've forsaken your first love. Well, maybe that's how some of us feel right now, going through the doldrums. It's all duty and no delight, trudging through, but your love has grown cold. Well, this letter is for you. I want to unpack it in three parts. Firstly, we see what Jesus commends in verses 2 and 3. Then we see what Jesus um, critiques in verse 4. 
And then we see what Jesus commands in verses 5 to 7. So firstly, let's look at what Jesus commands in verses 2 and 3. Uh, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that if you count them all up, he's actually got uh, nine things to commend about the Ephesians and only one thing to critique. But the nine things kind of boil down to two categories. Uh, he commends them for their good deeds and he commends them for their good theology. So look at their good deeds in verse 2a. Jesus says, I know your works. This is your good works, your labor and your endurance that you cannot tolerate evil. So this is a church that was full of good works. You can just imagine them all busily visiting the sick or feeding the poor or meeting up one-on-one -on -one to disciple younger Christians or getting on the roster to help uh, with, with the feeding or with church on Sunday. They're riding, they're cooking, they're cleaning, planning. The word for labor in verse 2 uh, is translated a bit soft because really it should be translated something like trouble or toil, difficulty or distress. It means exertion to the point of exhaustion. And Jesus says to them, I know your works. And he commends them for it. So to every one of you who's cooked a meal for the youth or for friends having them over or for the sick, Jesus knows your works. To every one of you serving on the roster, whether it's music or kids or youth or welcoming, set up, pack up, morning tea or something that I've forgotten, Jesus knows your works. To everyone laboring behind the scenes in prayer, Jesus knows your works. To those who visit the sick or lonely, as many of you do, Jesus knows your works. May God himself raise up within St. Philip's many more people like you. May he raise them up from amongst our young people, many more people like you, so that many more will see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. Jesus commends them for their good works. There's this great song that I've been listening to recently. You can look it up. It's called your labor is not in vain. Some of you may be feeling that way. And you can almost hear Jesus singing this over the church in Ephesus. Your labor is not unknown, though the rocks they cry out and the sea it may groan. The place of your toil may not seem like a home, but your labor is not unknown. And then the chorus goes like this. I am with you. I am with you. For I have called you, called you by name. Your labor is not in vain. I encourage you to look it up. It's a great song. Your labor is not in vain. Jesus commends them for their good works and then he commends them for their good theology. Look at verse 2b. And I think you see it again in verse six as well. In verse 2b, you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be liars. Uh, when Paul left the church in Ephesus in Acts 20, 30 years earlier, he warned them in Acts 20, verse 29. 
I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw disciples away after them. So be on your guard. Well, how encouraging that 30 years later, after this warning from Paul, that they have stood the test. Jesus commends them for their good theology, for guarding the good deposit of God's word and God's truth. Friends, let's never take it for granted that the leaders of St. Philip's have always tested everything against the word of God. What we see here is that Jesus commends such a quality in the church of testing everything. And it's not just for the leaders, it's for everyone. He says to the whole church, you have tested this teaching and these so-called apostles. And so I thank God for the legacy of sound doctrine and biblical teaching at St. Philip's that has endured through the years. And let's continue to hope and pray and be vigilant that in 30 years from now, Jesus might still be able to commend us for our good theology. It's not to be taken for granted. So what Jesus commends is their good deeds and their good theology. But now let's have a look at what Jesus critiques in verse 4. But I have this against you. You have abandoned your first love, or you have forsaken your first love. The problem with the Ephesians was that it was all duty, but no delight. All labor, but no love. All work, but no warmth. James Hamilton says, The Ephesian church is muddling through without much joy. In other words, the romance is gone. John Stott says, They toiled with vigor, but not with love. They endured with fortitude, but without love. They tested the message of their teachers, but had no love in their hearts. I think there's always a danger that we become a little bit like the older brother in the story of the two lost sons. He was a hard worker, a loyal son, but he yells at his dad, all these years I've been slaving for you and you've never given me so much as a young goat to celebrate with my friends. You see, in his mind, God is like a slave master and he's a slave instead of God being a father and him being a son. We've got to bust our guts for him, not because we love him, but because we're just trying to eke out of him, even just a young goat so that we can celebrate with our friends. It's easy for us to fall into that approach with God. We're treating him like a vending machine where we put in our hard day's work and all we want in return is a few goodies. He's more like a master and we're more like his slaves. The Ephesians were a bit like Martha, who was running around like crazy and working instead of sitting at Jesus' feet and worshipping. And so the, the people in the church in Ephesus 
were much more likely to rock up to a working bee than they were to rock up to a worship night. You were more likely to find them planning than you were to find them praying. They were much better at religious activity than they were at relating to God. Jesus takes the situation so seriously, their lack of love, their forsaking of the great commandment to love God, that he warns them in verse 5b. The only church who gets this warning. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Because of their lack of love, that it's grown cold. Jesus is promising them that if they don't repent, he will de-church the church. To paraphrase John Stott, there are plenty of churches today that have actually stopped being churches. Their ministers minister and their congregations congregate, but their lampstand, his presence, the spirit, has been removed. The churches have no light. And the reason they have no light is because they have no love. This is a very serious warning for the church in Ephesus. But what Jesus commands, our third point, is a three-step plan to get back on track. Look at it in your Bible. Step one is to remember. Look at verse 5a. Remember then how far you have fallen. Step two is to repent, verse 5b. He says, repent. In other words, turn around. And then step three is to resume. He says, do the things you did at first. Jesus doesn't just um, critique them. He doesn't just rebuke them. He shows them the pathway back. Remember, repent and resume. For those whose love has grown cold towards Jesus, for those who are in the doldrums or for whom coming to church or following Jesus is more duty than it is delight, you might go back to the time when you first fell in love with Jesus. For me, it was at a youth camp when I was 18 years old, and I can remember being overwhelmed at the stain of my sin and how this idea of sin that had just sort of been out there became personal and that it was my sin. I was overwhelmed by that, but then I was even more overwhelmed by the love and the forgiveness of Jesus and his embrace. And it was an electrifying feeling in my body and the tears flowed. I can remember after that how passionate I was to serve him, how keen I was to make changes in my life. I got baptized within a month. I actually called up a whole bunch of people from my school to apologize and say sorry for how I had sinned against them. I told my non-Christian friends and they said they couldn't believe this guy who was talking to them, the change. I was at Bible college within six months and started a ministry internship at my church within 12 months. Whatever sacrifices I made for Jesus paled in comparison to the joy that I had found 
in Jesus. The joy of the forgiveness of sins and his embrace and the purpose that I now had in Jesus. There's this great story in Genesis 29 about how Laban made Jacob do all this hard manual labor for seven long years before Laban would let Jacob marry his daughter. Verse 20 of Genesis 29 says, So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. That's what Jesus is asking of the church in Ephesus. And that's what Jesus is asking of us. That's how he wants us to work for him. Out of joy and love and delight. In the same way that my wife wants me to buy her flowers and take her out on dates, not because it's my duty or not out of drudgery, but out of desire and delight. God is most glorified when we're most satisfied in Him. He's not glorified when we do it out of duty and drudgery. Well, Jesus says the key to doing this is to go back to your first love. Remember what it was like when you first fell in love with Jesus. Do the things you did at first. And so I want to conclude today with John Newton writing about his first love in a poem. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood, who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never to my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I died that thou mayst live. Thus, while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace. It seals my pardon too. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for showing us what you think of the church. And thank you for showing us what you thought, Lord, of the church in Ephesus. Lord, that you commend them for their good deeds and their good theology. May we hear that same commendation, Lord, for ours. Lord, that you critique them for forsaking their first love. Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember, repent and resume the works we did at first. Lord, may our service of you be one of delight more than it is one of duty. And Lord, help us to heed the solemn warning of removing the lampstand, Lord. 
and we pray that uh, we would uh, be a church that is indeed on fire for you. Pour out your spirit upon us, renew and refresh our love and bring us back to you. In Jesus' name, amen.